You're listening to Black Neon Digital Podcast, episode 18, Ursula de Castro and Jocelyn Whipple. Fashion revolution is changing the culture of fashion. Welcome to Black Neon Digital Podcast. I'm your host, Jodie Muta-Hamilton, the founder of Black Neon Digital, and I believe the future of fashion is to honour craftsmanship whilst embracing innovation and to support each other to build businesses that have integrity. The entrepreneurs and visionaries who we speak to are using fashion as a way to create change, finding new ways of working towards a more sustainable and connected fashion industry. Within the sustainable fashion movement, Fashion Revolution and co-founder Ursula de Castro need no introduction. However, what still intrigues me is how some people who work in the fashion industry and consumers haven't heard of Fashion Revolution, the Fashion Transparency Index, or their worldwide campaign, Who Made My Clothes? With more time and funding, this will certainly change. Ursula and Jocelyn Whipple, Fashion Revolution's Country Coordinators Liaison, have known each other and worked together for many years, which you can hear quite clearly in this very special podcast. As part of an exploration into the culture of fashion, we talk to Ursula and Joss about the way in which the fashion industry is formed and how that plays out for factory workers, who are mainly women, the existing fashion establishment and the next generation of fashion creatives. Good morning, uh, Ursula and Dross. Really happy to have you here. I would like to start with how you guys met and how you came to be working together. Okay, I'm going to start on how we met and then just I'm sure we'll continue. But we met when I started curating Aesthetica, so that was 2006, it was our first season. And Joss was at the time living in the US and being an agent for some of the brands that I wanted to bring into the show. So I called her, and what was supposed to be a very brief, you know, hi, how do you do, can I have your brands, turned into this lengthy conversation that just, you know, wouldn't stop. We were on the phone for hours. And the funniest thing is that I had this complete idea of what, to me, Joss looked like. And she was, she still had a bit of an American twang, because she lived in the US, but, you know, to me, she was blonde, she had massive boobs and, you know, she was completely perfectly turned out and made up and, you know, painted nails. And so, yeah, that was it. And then, of course, when I met her, I was super drawn to her. I didn't know who she was. And I went, oh, my God, look at that girl. She's so pretty. And then her somebody came to me and said, that girl looks just like you. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty. Uh, it was great. Actually, I had just moved back from America, so I'd been living there for about six years, and I'd just moved back, and I was in Brighton, and I was. Um, th- th- it turned out that there was all these American brands who were trying to c- sort of come into the European market because there was this um, new kind of buzz around all the sustainable brands that were coming through at that time, and yeah, Ursula and Philippa were setting up Aesthetica. It was a really exciting time, yeah. and yeah, so I, my memory of that phone call was was pretty similar. Although, in my um, visualization of what Ursula looked like, um, she was very tall and she had this sort of silvery hair, and she was wearing this sort of big flowing kind of caftan thing um and she was yeah sort of very 
Um, I think she probably had a cigarette holder as well and a, and a cigarette. <laughs> and that same thing when we actually, we met, I think it was the first day of, um, of set-up at Aesthetica yeah. in, the, in the National History Museum and the tents there. Oh. And I think um, your husband um, kind of at some point mistook, like sort of, waved to me and I thought who's that man waving why is he waving at me and basically just people kept mistaking us for each other and it turned out actually we look really similar and we now have our own hashtag actually which is um hashtag sister face um but I mean obviously people can't see us but you know I don't have silver hair I certainly don't wear caftans Jess is not blonde and she doesn't have big boobs in fact we're both relatively short quite skinny black haired and I definitely don't wear nail polish Uh, yeah yeah, no it was it was great and that and that time was really exciting as well it was a really exciting time to be here in London there was so much happening and, and there was um there was the soetic um section at, at Pret-a-Porter in Paris was happening and you know I'd kind of come from um the sort of um, west coast of America and there was a lot happening over there as well within the trade shows at that time there was still a there was still a um a, a really sort of thriving wholesale scene yeah. and and there was really before the internet um, um online stores had taken off I mean I think you know Net-a-Porter and ASOS were still just kind of emerging and so it was a very different time wasn't it for the sustainable brands who were coming through at that time very different it's just I mean I I do remember when we started so we had been exhibitors with my brand from somewhere which was a very small but quite successful in its own way brand we reused really the first one to reuse luxury pre-consumer waste at scale so we really did work at scale and and achieved numbers and so on and it was somehow pre-stigma you know, many of the words that we're using now didn't really exist. It wasn't really, yeah, it was ethical fashion, but you could also still just call it fashion. You know, it was way before we all became camel hoarders to a certain extent. And this was the strength of, of Aesthetica when, when the British Fashion Council asked myself and, and my partner, Filippo, with whom I ran the brand, to curate, um, to found and curate Aesthetica. We gave it the name, but we also gave it this identity, and the identity was design first. And it wasn't difficult mm-hmm. um, to, to, to sell in as a concept at that time. It was still possible and believable. Progressively, um, this kind of idea that you know ethical fashion, sustainable fashion was sort of the country chasm got more and more entrenched. Um, but at the time, there was an opening. There were loads of brands and there was a sense of vibrancy, which I'm actually feeling again right now. I agree. You know, we sort of of lost it, but we're feeling it again. But Estetica definitely was the place where the UK community at least got together. And in those days, the UK community was the strongest one out of all of the, you know, other, uh, you know, innovation Mm -hmm. in, in, in fashion in this, you know, in this field, I think it also area. attracted it attracted the international community though as well because we ended up, you know, certainly from from the contacts that I had, there was American brands that were so excited and relieved that there was a place to show mm. and a place to be in Europe, and um, there were French brands, there were German brands coming through as well, mm. and Italian brands. Yeah. You know, there was a it was a real relief actually, and it was a really um, it was um, 
it was a place where all of these all of these concepts really kind of formulated. Yeah, no, that's what I meant. And I mean, the brands were international, but the the appointment mm. was where you know the fact that twice a year there was this moment mm. um, defined somehow a lot of the aesthetics also mm. and the the kind mm. of the branding the the. Mm. The, the way the that we all, it, yeah. the feel, the way that we all worked and interacted with each other. I mean, I often joke saying to a certain extent, Fashion Revolution was born inside Estetica. You yeah. know, Carrie was one of our, you know, Carrie Summers, my, the, my uh, you know, we, we founded it together, was, was in Estetica as one of the brands. Half the team. Yeah, you know, and there was, that's what we met. you know, for, for me, there's there's relationships that were formed during that time, um, which are still really, really valuable. And people have moved on, and people have perhaps changed position within the industry. But they're all people who I think we can still feel like you can pick up the phone mm. to them, you know, twenty years later, yeah. and, and and ask them a question or invite them to to, to participate in something. And there was a, a real sense of collaboration, and I think that's what's behind this movement is this genuine sense of. Uh, collaboration which doesn't exist anywhere else in the mm. fashion industry and that's what separates this yeah. as a movement and that's what really gives us our strength and that's what's you know why we've been able to f- form fashion revolution in the way that we have and you know and reaching the sort yeah. of global element yeah because yeah. there are these real genuine um connections between um individuals and organizations individuals really um it's about breaking a pattern i mean you know the fashion industry that's both predictable in fashion to want to be the opposite to what you were before but it's also about time you know when i when i look at the movement that is in front of us now when i look at you know sustainability in fashion i see that it primarily is trying to infiltrate the culture of fashion making things differently. I mean, I was recently speaking in Copenhagen and it felt very strong for me the fact that, you know, transparency is the first step, a tool, an instrument, best practice, but primarily it's absolutely giving the finger to the fashion industry. I mean, this is an industry that is based on elitism, on closed doors, mm-hmm. and suddenly here we are saying, nope, mm-hmm. you now have to be open, you now have to collaborate, you now have to do things together. And that changes the interface, the whole way that fashion's been operating for the last 30, 40 but years. It, it completely rocks a boat, and that's yeah. what people are fearful of, and they're yeah, fearful of, of their own position within that as of well. Course. And, you know, that ultimately comes back down to making money. So it's kind of... of course. You know, everyone's very fearful of it. But nevertheless, you know, if you analyse the fashion supply chain, it's built on inefficiency. So Mm -hmm. they're making money out of a very inefficient business model. So we know it's going to take a long time to change it. But effectively, once they've changed it, it ought to be to their benefit because money will be better made. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, actually, because the word... I think the word transparency wasn't even around. We weren't even using that word at that time, you know, back in 2006 or 2007. It wasn't something that was being used. But but nevertheless, it was very much the sort of bedrock, one of the bedrock principles of all of those brands who were coming out. It was just they were naturally transparent. Mm. That was, They were... They were also naturally traceable. And traceable, is, you know, yeah. And all of those things, um, which is part of um, what I would call good design, basically. Yeah. You know, well, I mean, you know, the one thing I always say to, to my students, and I'm lucky to have a lot of them, but is, you know, designers are there to find solutions and not to create problems. So the minute you give them that agency, that their creativity can actually be the vehicle mm. towards a better future and, you know, better design, then immediately yeah. you see them, 
you know, their eyes shining yeah. and their brain, you know, they visibly, you know, you can see it working. But also, I think understanding that as fashion industry decision makers, um, we are we are automatically social and environmental decision makers as well. And it's been that connection um, as designers, which I think is um, really important. And I think that's what, you know, a lot of the, the brands that kind of pioneered this movement were just simply doing that and taking responsibility from the get-go. Mm. Um, Quite inherently yeah, as well. Though. And just yeah. being, just acknowledging and being, being um, you know, being honest about the, the decision-making process. And yeah. So following that, we have seen, you know, incidences such as Rana Plaza, um, which has made people, well, hopefully made a lot of people stand up and think, right, the, this has to be the cut-off point, this has to be the change. Um, so how do you think now people are dealing with that? And how do you think they're sort of implementing that in their daily practice, their design practice? Or do you think they're not? Do you think? Kind of. Do you mean? Sorry. Do you mean um, designers themselves? Yeah. 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 Um, well, I think firstly that the the landscape, the retail landscape, has changed so much. Um, so I think the way that designers are approaching collections and approaching their brands and approaching their positioning within the the kind of broader landscape is is um, has changed um, a lot since the beginning of this movement. Maybe not since we're on the plaza so much. Um, I think there's probably, there's kind of two extremes really and one is um, designers um, becoming really quite um, almost stalled by the level of um, the level of thinking that actually has to take place mm. as a slow fashion brand and the level of sort of critique that's happening and self-critique I think for designers um, and they're getting kind of to this place where they're almost sort of feeling like well you know maybe we actually shouldn't be making mm. this much clothes and then on the other extreme you've got um, just this sort of rampant willful blindness that just still mm. goes on mm. and there's there's many many examples still unfortunately of brands um, who are um, just um, doing nothing doing nothing yeah, and that's um, unfortunately seems to be the majority. Although there is this real emergence globally of slow fashion, that there is no biodiversity in this industry whatsoever. I mean, you know, this is what the problem is: is that to a certain extent, say when I started being a brand and started exhibiting at London Fashion Week, this would be the year two thousand. That was, it was possible to have a business. It was mm. possible to be a small brand. It was possible to wholesale to international VIP department stores, you know, or non-VIP, you know, small stores, whatever, boutiques, independent retailers. There were independent retailers. And right now we have gigantified everything. So, you know, we have, you know, you are either Primark or you are Prada. There is absolutely mm -hmm. no space for anything in between. And Rana Plaza, unfortunately, had an effect on those so, you know, it made either the Primarchs or the Prada stand up and take notice. It didn't really affect the young creatives that are being born now. And that's a whole different conversation. Mm -hmm. But that's why I keep on bringing this back to culture. We need to change the culture of fashion. Mm -hmm. We need to understand that the high street needs to look very, very different in five years' time. And I think we're getting there. I mean, interestingly, the majority of fashion-trained students... Um, big majority, I think it's, I wouldn't, you know, I, I'm not very good with numbers, but I think it's over 70% 
do not want to work within the big houses mm. that are there to employ them because they don't trust them, because they don't share their ethos, because they don't want to be, you know, worked the way the designers in big houses are uh, being worked. There is a higher number of young designers starting their own label now mm. than at some point in the 80s when there was a flourishing of them. So there is a genuine need on behalf of the young generations to use their creativity and to change the fashion business model. For the first time, we are hearing not just fashion students, but also business students, young students, saying it's not about growth. Mm. It's about something else. Mm. I, When I was a brand, one of the reasons why I never had a business loan was because I'd go to the bank manager and they would say, are you going to double next year? And my reply would be, I'm really happy where I am. Yeah. That business model is the one that we need to start exploring mm. culturally. You know, but I think also there's um, there's still this there's this still this really serious disconnect between um, a designer's job um, and and the manufacturing and the manufacturing and there's still such um, such a lack of insight into what actually what it means to design a product and have it made um, and so and that's what we're trying to do with fashion um, fashion revolution is reconnect those links and re and really instill in young designers and and people within the industry you know that. Um, these these real the human connections and what the impacts are of your decision making mm. as a designer and what that means um, at the sort of big scale but also at the small scale and so I think that is um, still ultimately one of the major mm. problems that hasn't changed is that disconnect. Yeah. Well, it's getting better because getting better. you know the, the reality yeah. is that when we started Fashion Revolution. Um, there was an implicit simplicity about what we wanted to know, and that was who made my clothes. I mean, that has got to be the simplest question ever asked, and yet the hardest one to answer. Mm, yeah. So I think that what Fashion Revolution did is that it took something that was really immediate and a question that anybody would be asking to themselves and really exposed how nobody could answer yeah, it. Exactly. And that was, you know, that was our strength. Mm. And yet we are seeing a massive increase. I mean, you know, we publish a annual fashion transparency index and I think that you know three years ago for our first fashion transparency index it was something like 12% of brands were publishing you know of the brands that we charted were publishing and it's increasing year on you know it's there's an increase of in certain cases 20% from last year to this year so the numbers of brands publishing the first and second tier supply chain is growing steadily which tells me somehow that this you know, transparency and anyway, becoming a part of this movement is beginning to be written in not their past DNA, but in their future yeah. DNA. So they're appropriating this, mm -hmm. you know, movement in the way that they run, they run the brand because they know that consumers mm -hmm. are becoming increasingly curious, but also that the younger generations of people entering these brands have a very different principles you know to to, to them yeah and also there's there's also um a very sort of emergent counterbalance at the manufacturing level as well so that so the young people who are entering manufacturing jobs in you know wherever they are are also global mm -hmm. citizens and they're also very much you know becoming more and more informed about these issues and so that's changing at that level as mm -hmm. well and it's um, yeah, no, it's it's interesting to see, and it is it is exciting. There is yeah. a lot happening, and mm -hmm. and there's a lot more 
room for leverage now than there was 20 years ago you know you can you can't sort of claim that you don't know what organic cotton is as a buyer anymore you can't sort of claim that you don't Mm. understand the word transparency as in relation to Mm. fashion as an industry professional and I think that's a massive a massive change from Mm. 20 years ago I think that there is also this understanding finally that it's just not one segment of society that's going to change things but you know as just says you know it is the designers it is the people entering factories it is the people entering the mills the you know there is an awareness there is an understanding which is you know beginning to make sense across the supply chain i mean the fashion supply chain is the least vertical out of pretty much all supply chains in most industries and built on disconnect and it's so built on disconnect that to a certain extent brands mirror it you know the design team doesn't know the sourcing team the sourcing team doesn't know the you know merchandising or the marketing team and so on and so forth so we're all working in silos and it's finally um you know this has been exposed i don't know how much it's changing but it's been exposed yeah. that we're working in in, you know, yeah. in this way and you know the truth is that we can't any longer turn a blind eye because ultimately you know, this is the planet that we all share. And, you know, the reality is that if a Bangladesh um, leather worker is being polluted to death, um, you know, we are wearing daily the product that he's made or they've made. So it's, you know, there is a responsibility, there is a shared responsibility. And I think for me, um, where I see it the most and where it touches me more profoundly again is with students because you know say when we were in aesthetic or whatever it was still a conversation related to trends for these guys it's a matter of survival it's very very different you know they wake up in the morning and they don't know that there's going to be a planet when they're 80 we never had that yeah yeah you know so inevitably you know it's it's not a cry for cool it's a cry for help, yeah, you know, yeah, help no, me change is. this world, yeah, help right. me change this industry, yeah. help me change this yeah. conversation. Yeah. And what I love and what I've, I'm delighted to be able to give to these younger generations of designers coming up via fashion revolution and, and everything else is this sense of you are a part of the solution. Yeah. Don't think about the fact that you've inherited a massive problem. Employ yourself as being a part of the solution. solution yeah. And this is what's changing yeah. because, you know, five years ago people were, you know, I think the fashion industry is probably the only industry where the word worthy was used as negative. And now it's positive again. You know, now it is about making those changes. And culturally, physically, socially, environmentally, being a part of those changes. And I think that's that's what's led you and I um, and kind of everyone else that's sort of been part of this to where we are now is that constantly finding new solutions and yeah. it's really exciting and it's really inspiring and it's and there there's and it, there's lo- it's always unexpected as well, you know, it's not something that there's a real it's not very formulaic. There's um you know things like zero waste cutting or um I don't know there's always there's there's innovation which is is exciting um and that's what I think you never know quite what's around the corner Mm. and what the next thing's going to be or what it's going to look like I think um you you sort of mentioned on the innovation point how um how do you say innovation generally and technology as a, a thing has changed over the past few years and how do you feel you can harness that for 
the benefit of the sort of fashion revolution? Well, I think fashion revolution wouldn't exist um, quite the same without um, the digital um, the digital landscape that we that we sort of inhabit, really, because we do rely on it. Um, very much for the conversations that we're having and we we, you know we rely on it as a team we work remotely um so you know that would be kind of impossible for us to operate and it gives us an agility and it gives us an immediacy and it gives us also a kind of level playing field again for the conversation to happen with anyone who has access to technology which is for the most part um you know most people in the world now have some Mm. level of um and, and it's not that offline um events and and um, things happening in the real world on the ground aren't very important as well and and, it, and really crucial to to what we're to you know to what we're um developing and what we're kind of um what we're exposing really with mm-hmm. fashion revolution but it gives us an immediacy and a and Connect, a agency. connection yeah and a connection yeah. which is really crucial and, and again really exciting and and you know sometimes it can gets quite competitive it's as as with any kind of um yeah any kind of um arena but um yeah i think I, I I I mean I suppose I'm part of the generation and we're both part of the generation who remembers a time before digital before mm. digital yeah and that that also for us for me anyway on an individual level um, I'm so grateful that I do remember a time before pre digital mm. and and how things worked and so there's a sort of different level of value to it maybe and I see it very much as a tool mm. whereas I think the younger generation you know it's just a given and so they have a very different relationship with I it. think the younger and the old generation I mean my feeling with technology and I'm you know I'm really not just talking about social media but I'm talking about technology in general as a tool to finally achieve everything there is a risk that we rely too much yeah. on it you know yeah. it's like it has made things incredibly easy mm-hmm. But making things incredibly easy does stifle your creativity and to a certain extent makes your journey too flat. Yeah. You know, where's that hill? Where's that yeah. bump? You know, and I think we still need the hills and the bumps. I mean, in, in particular, if I think of technology right now, the way that we are looking for to be saved by circularity to a certain extent, you know, we're not there. And yet it's been sold as being round the corner. Simply because we're used to technology developing so fast mm. that somehow we can wish it to be tomorrow. But in certain cases, it's simply not going to be mm. tomorrow. So I think it's important to understand that technology is technology, but innovation is not just about technology yeah. because actually it's innovative to bring something back, maybe, you know, a past mm. wisdom and marry it into the future. That's just as innovative. So for me, it is imperative that we continue to think both ways. I mean, the example I can bring of this marriage would be the makers movement Mm. and how they communicate with each Mm. other via technology. But they're still bloody knitting, you know. And so I think it's important to understand, particularly in the case, I mean, I go back to circularity. So fashion revolution, we've been campaigning primarily about transparency, but we've always said that we would enter a more environmental sphere, which we did with our latest fanzine, which is called Loved Clothes Last, which, you know, the title tells you that it's going to be about having a different relationship with the things that we already own. You know, I find it profoundly innovative that we might look 
at stuff we already own and decide to bring it into the future with us because it's so much not what we've been taught to do over the last 20 years. So I feel that it's important to look at innovation as, you know, sometimes in order to better innovate, we need not just to look at the future, but to look back also in order to move forward. Yeah, actually, it's making me think of um, during Fashion Revolution Week, um, I'm living in Spain um, part of the year at the moment. So um, this year I was in in my village in southern Spain and um, I hosted an event there. And one of the part part of the event was I, I invited the Women's Association of Monda, my town, to come and talk about how you know fashion had changed and clothing had changed in the last um, 50 years really or 70 years and there it was just incredible to hear the stories of the women there who you know didn't have running water in their houses until 76 they didn't have electricity in their houses they had to you know take all their clothes up to the river to wash them and um, and and also the the question one of the questions was about you know who made my clothes and um, they knew exactly who made their clothes because there were three people in the village who made everyone's clothes yeah and, and you knew exactly you know and so um, I think uh, yeah like like just going back to what what also was saying this kind of looking back this retrospective and finding and you know it's, it's so interesting and we we have we have a, a actually a very special window at the moment to access that kind of information from from mm. the people and um, from that generation who are even even more kind of removed from the digital era and to sort of make sure that we retain that um that and information, it get lost. yes, yeah. and yeah. that, and that, like, I totally agree with you. Um, also, that there's sort of the connection to materials, the mm. connection to making, the connection to when you're coming up with a design concept, what the actual impacts are, and what it means. Um, in terms of having that thing made, is so crucial. And I think, I think there is a, yeah, there's a disconnect with the technology brings a disconnect. There's a danger of that. There is also a risk of being rhetorical. I mean, you know, for me, uh, I don't. I hate the concept of, you know, oh, but, you know, we had it all, it was right in the past. It's not. The fashion industry, within its spectrum of the birth of the fashion industry, within the Industrial Revolution, it's born exploitative. Mm. You know, cotton was produced by slaves in Africa. It was then sent here to be, you know, processed by children in sweatshops and then sold you know, via the East India Company. I mean, like, oh, terrible start. But the point is that we need this evolution. And across its history, there have been pockets where this industry was really um, interesting, really right, very female, very much about, you know, um, the craft of fashion is part of the evolution of this industry. So for me, what's really exciting right now is the fact is this marriage, you know, the fact that, yes, we can look forward to circularity because we know it will happen. Mm. But, you know, are we going to sit on our fat, fat asses and wait for it to happen? What's the interim solution? You know, it's always about the journey, the road to. Yeah. That's what I celebrate. I think also what's really exciting for me at the moment, and I think this is something that's changed in our sort of um our um, era uh, since like since Aesthetica and so forth is, is there's this sort of shift from um, brands trying to sort of be a sustainable version of um, yeah. a sustainable version of the high street or a sustainable version mm. of denim or 
um, to something that we actually have no idea no what it's going to look like. I and I'm it. so excited to yeah. see what fashion looks like. Um, so real, you know, the, the innovations around um, taking sustainability and, um, you know, social justice as design factors and making them part of the function of the design. Absolutely. And then what does it look like? And it's so exciting Absolutely. to see. And that, that also coming from all parts of the world and not just being driven by this kind of Western version of what is what is um fashionable and i think that's uh, you know there's a real um there's there's so much happening in to a certain area, extent what exciting. fast fashion has done is that this the fact that we are having to deal with trends every six weeks is going to be the biggest killer of all trends yeah. because soon you're not yeah. going to have a trend lasting any longer than a no. week so that's obviously not a trend yeah. but for me it's exactly what just is saying i mean what i am really looking forward is the high street in five years' time. You know, I've always been firmly focused in the future to my own detriment most of the time. I mean, you know, my brand was about 25. I mean, now, if I started my brand now, I would be so successful. But, you know, of course, it was 25 years ago. So that's always been... But that's what I'm looking at. You know, I'm looking at completely different business models. Another thing I always tell my students is that, you know, when you are a pioneer, you have no frames of references, mm. so you're making your own mm. rules. Hooray! Yeah. You know, at the moment, they're making their own rules, not in terms of design, but all in, not just in terms of design, but also the way that they sell their product, yeah. the way that they place their product. Mm. Are people even buying or the their reasons product? why or people want to buy a product as well exactly. coming up with those you know, um yeah not just the design and making it's it's the kind of the are you going to just but lend it yeah, in fact exactly. is it going to come back to exactly. you what does it look like and yeah. that that is where you know if i was a dog and if i had a tail it'd be wagging yeah. because that's what i find really exciting yeah. that we're yeah. looking at a panorama that is going to look something in between you know the future and the 17th century yeah. all yes. rolled into one amazing yeah, yeah, high street. Yeah. That's what I'd like to see. It is exciting. Um, we've talked a little bit about the connection that women have within the fashion industry. Um, so from, you know, you sort of said the people in the workhouses in England to the cotton picking fields. How do you think we can connect on a, on a woman's level and kind of um, use that almost connection to progress things? fashion industry there is it's absolutely undeniable that in if it operate if fashion did what fashion has to do right women would be empowered um it's a female industry you know it's been female since its first thread and yet it's a technological industry because actually most technological innovation come in order to support the fashion and textile industry so you know chemicals were invented first to fix the dye on a piece of fabric. Apparently, it is said that the very first wheel was not for transport, it was for spinning. We would not be alive had it not been for the invention of the needle because, you know, cave people wore these complicated skins. It wasn't until they put them together and started cutting them and sewing them that they had the agility to hunt in the Ice Age. So almost all technology comes in order to somehow fix our clothes onto us. And it's often been female, very, very female. So the garment worker force is potentially 80% female and 90% of the people that died at the Rana Plaza disaster were young female, young girls. So, you know, I am a rabid, raging feminist. Um, so I very much believe that, that this is our industry and that 
It is our respect for the people that make our clothes that will advance them. And how we choose not to advance them is still a mystery mm. to me. How, you know, how come we are so aware that eating a tomato that is rife with pesticides, it's bad for us? How come do we not make the same connection that, you know, when the Rana Plaza workers were complaining about their factory feeling unsafe to them, Clothes were leaving it, and two weeks later, we bought them. We wore these people's fear. Transactions happen in the act of sewing something, making something. We wear that. We wear that misery, or we wear that dignity. Yeah. Don't we want to wear the dignity of people, and in particular yeah. for female? And it's it is. I think for, it, it's. I think both of us have sort of said um, many times that just taking a moment to slow down and stop, think and think about the clothes that we want to have or the ones that we already have, and making those very human connections. For understanding how your clothes are made and what they're made out of and what the potential, what the implications of those materials are. It's not rocket science. You know, we can, common all, sense. We can all understand it. It is common sense. And um, and so just taking that, that few seconds more to make those connections and to imagine the person at the other end of that supply chain or the other end of that garment um and yeah and to and to sort of evoke the empathy that we have for our our immediate um family yeah. or our other i also think it's really important to understand that you know the we think of the supply chain as some kind of la la land far away yeah. your wardrobe is in the supply chain mm -hmm. it's somewhere three quarters of the way but you know you really are in there so every single decision that you take actually has an effect mm. on the supply chain and on someone in, uh, and, and yeah. people and so yeah and that is again what we're trying to bring through um, fashion revolution it's very much based on that um, <coughs> idea that we um we're, we're having an effect but our decisions have an effect on other people mm. how um so one of the themes that i keep thinking about myself is sort of like we're buying from a place of not need obviously but um we're marketed to and it kind of plays on our insecurities and our egos and things like this so how do we combat that to a position where internally we're happy with ourselves and therefore don't need to um you know kind of buy something to make us feel great you know how how can we apart from a lot of sort of internal work no that's the kind of thing it's a reconnection to ownership yeah. and it's a reconnection to how we access clothing i think you know for for me one of the things and this came again with the conversation with the women or um with with ursula i know that you you experienced this um being given something rather than going out and buying it you know um sort of remembering that there's other ways to access and participate with our wardrobes rather than just going out and buying something new and it's not there's not anything wrong with that feeling of having a new garment or having a new something or, or um you know there's nothing wrong with that feeling but i think it's just again slowing down and catching ourselves um uh, when we're being sort of forced or falsely led into that feeling and how we how we get to that feeling and finding other ways to to experience it and through things like swap sharing or, and, but um, the female making something the, the, the female aspect of this is bigger than that i mean you know we have been sold a really pretty terrifying image of what it means to be a woman so mm. you know if you think that five years ago your average fashion image was 
an underaged, underweight, um, blonde girl sprawled on a zebra skin sofa with pumped up lips, you know, that is disrespectful to almost every woman, including mm. the skinny, underweight, blonde, yeah. you know, it's certainly this, you know, we've been sold age defying product yeah. on two-year-olds basically yeah. 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 you know how disrespectful is that to me yeah. you know why should I and that image is now completely irrelevant you yeah. know we don't want a semi-naked skinny girl you know um pouting yeah. on us we, it is completely irrelevant to now in in that for that I have to thank social media and you know for that I have to thank the sort of you know to a certain extent having never taken a selfie for that I have to thank the selfie mm. but we have to be a very active part in defying this culture and in saying, that's not me. Yeah. You know, and once we've done that, then we will have the freedom to say, okay, that's not me. What is yeah, me? Yeah. And then we buy clothes that are right it? for yeah. us. And it's informing design as well. You know, this kind of, of new wave of feminism is really informing design and it's making us, and it's really interesting again to see what that, that looks like. It's not just feminism. It's the fact that, you know, it's easier for an 18-year-old boy to come out as gay or as trans mm. right now than it's ever been. That's yeah. informing design yes, as well. Yes, yeah. You know, the fact that they're not entrenched in their own fear the fact that we're beginning you know the reality is again so if the fashion industry has been entirely based on elitism it is within that elitism that the lack of diversity is considered natural same mm. as it's within the closed doors that environmentalist social abuse is rife yeah. so that's why we need to take this industry and do a sunny side up you know just yeah. turn it around completely yeah. and say no these are the values for the future mm. and these are new values that's why I'm saying I don't want to be rhetorical and move back because you know if I do look back I see woman exploitation you know so I don't want to look back necessarily I want to look a little bit back to move forward but I the think, moving forward yeah. is a different society a different culture and fashion as a manifestation of that culture hopefully will invent those new rules as well um, i think we need to also just be mindful that we do um, watch out though for that very these very principles and these very things being marketed to us through um, very clever brands as well because they I have I do see that kind of happening already and and it's Gucci. yeah it's it's hard to sometimes know where the truth lies and so again it's coming back to ourselves taking that moment and just um, allowing ourselves to just have the space. Um, to 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 connect with our own identities and know that 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 is fine and that is that's how we should be um it's also of, raising kind of a generation that actually can speak about this thing i mean you know i i know the the feeling you know i know what you mean about things being marketed that way but you know to a certain extent if we then have the young generation of journalists that understand the language, understand the change, then they can criticise that. You know, mm. we also need to bring, you know, it's been impossible to criticise fashion for yeah. 30 years. You know, this is what happens yeah. when you, you know, when you are run by dinosaurs, yes. is that they they trample all over you yes. if you try to say, hey man, I don't <laughs> like that. You know, I would love to be able to see fashion criticism again, mm. a whole new generation of journalists yes. that actually say, sorry love, 
that's a marketing campaign. Yeah. I can see through it. I'm not interested. But yeah. intelligently mm. rather than just randomly. Yeah. So in that sense, again, it's not just one element of society that needs to embrace this change. Mm. It's not just the designers. It's not just the manufacturers. It's the chemists, yeah. the journalists, the business the retailers. people, the retailers. You know, it, it's something yeah. that we need to do jointly Collectively, because yeah. we, and that's what transparency does to mm. a certain extent, it encourages a culture of scrutiny and vigilance. We need to scrutinize each other mm. and we need to be able to tell each other, look, you're full of Honesty, shit. Honesty, yeah. You know, yeah. Be, be, be real, yeah, give yeah. it to me as, as it is. And is. take opportunities to share that. I mean, I think I always encourage people when they're shopping or whatever, when they're buying clothes, to, to you know, ask the questions and don't, not, yeah. you know, not just think them, but actually communicate with each other. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, physically, you mm. know, physically do it. Um, so, could you tell us what's what's next on the horizon? So, I know you've had a your sort of anniversary, and that's kind of you've had a discussion point about that. So, what is next, UK and globally, for fashion revolution? Um, <laughs> that you're allowed well, to tell we, us. We, need, yeah. well, exactly. <laughs> we are growing exponentially, and so I think that's the biggest. Um, that's our biggest change. That as an organisation, I guess. Um, you know, it's been all about baby steps, but we never really did take baby steps. They were always kind of quite giant. So we are really growing into ourselves. I think for me, the biggest change for the future is one, our confidence that, you know, we are fashion revolution and this is what we do and this is how we do it. And, you know, when I said before that pioneers have no frameworks, that's also very relevant for us. There is no other campaign like mm -hmm. us. And so I'm very proud of that difference and I'm proud of that originality and I think we'll be building on that. So maybe some of the things that we will do will be surprising, um, but certainly the things that we will be doing will be still as deep and as meaningful. Um, but yes, we will grow and we will continue to grow. I think it's important also to mention that we want to be 360 degrees. So although transparency will still stay a massive focus, we are embracing the environment via mass production and waste. We are beginning to develop a really strong voice in terms of, you know, talking about that. Uh, fashion revolution is very much about empathy without pity. And I think that it's also about talking to a very younger, you know, much younger generation about, you know, all that we've talked before about changing the culture of fashion. And so that's also very much in the cards. And I mean, I, my role within Fashion Revolution is the country coordinator's liaison, which means I get to work with these incredible teams around the world. And, and um, I'm really excited about, I, I think what what Ursula said is very much true. You know, we're building a framework, we're building this um, this thing um, from, from scratch. Um, and it's really exciting. And, and I'm looking forward to the next kind of five years where we're, starting, we're going to be developing um, the international chapters of Fashion Revolution and really kind of... Um, finding our place um in in you know around the world which we already are but kind of solidifying some mm. of those um s some of those positions and and exploring what fashion revolution is in different parts of the world mm. um so yeah no there's there's lots happening and it is really exciting there's always a lot lots happening Thanks. with us and i'm the creative director of fashion revolution by the way and i think it's it's been the most rock and roll journey I've had so far. I mean, you know, I have to also say that the team 
the global coordination team of Fashion Revolution is potentially my favourite place on earth. I can say that now because my children have grown up, so I can transfer my my love somehow. But it's um it's a yes team. It's never a no team. It's you know yes let's do that. Yes let's try that. And within limits, um, that is massively refreshing. Yeah, it is. And again, it comes back to this sense of connectedness. Um, I think through not only our, our team, which I can't agree more here in London, um, well, actually remotely, but um, we are um, just still in love with each other five years later, yeah. which is really great. But also the, you know, the people all around the world who've kind yeah. of come forward and, um, you know, stepped up onto this platform and, and made themselves known. Made and it theirs. Making, yeah, making it theirs. And, and um, it's really, really exciting still. Lovely. Thank you so much, ladies. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. It's been such a pleasure. It's clear that we're in a time of huge change and that we need a fashion revolution. By breaking down barriers of elitism and patriarchy, we begin to create a fashion industry where the balance of power can be set straight. And we can build businesses where profit is not valued above the well-being of people or the environment. By demanding transparency from the field where our fabrics begin life to the board level where decisions about people's lives are made, we all have a part to play in creating the kind of world we want to live and work in. Don't underestimate the power you have as a fashion industry professional to implement new ways of working and as a consumer to demand that a brand has a set of values that aligns with your own. If we each take it upon ourselves to tell everyone what who made my clothes really means, then slowly but surely we'll all be part of a fashion revolution. Till next time, be sure to join the conversation via Instagram at Black Neon Digital, Twitter at Digital Neon and online at blackneondigital.com. Please be sure to rate and review us and hit subscribe on iTunes. <laughs> <laughs>